out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Steady on, Jim. That sounds very, very deep. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. I'm with you for the next 60 plus minutes. As you know, always playing the finest in indie pop from the golden decade, but also we love a special guest. This week, it's the amazing Tim Rogers, all the way from Australia, who I caught up with a few nights ago to find out more about life, love, poetry, and also being a musician, actor, writer, and much more in the Australian rock band, You Am I. And um, after a few minutes of casual chat and getting to know each other, we got turned to that very exciting subject that um, was, where were we? And I mentioned Norwich and um, had asked him had he played in Norwich. And this was Tim's response. And then the rest of the interview. Enjoy it. Make notes. I will test you at the end. Yeah, yeah, we've, we've played there uh, oh, probably only four or five times, uh, not for a while, but um, I think our guitarist, Davey, was such a huge Alan Partridge fan that we were, we were staying in a, in a hotel. We, we regularly stayed in a hotel in Norwich that felt very much like uh, one that was represented on an Alan Partridge uh, uh, series. Yes. And so we, we'd have the dichotomy of reliving those experiences whilst behaving very badly. Yes. Very politely, but very badly. I mean, just sort of uh, doing loads of drugs in, in, um, in a, what, what felt like a regional hotel. <laughs> a travel um, tavern. Yes, a classic with uh, probably very, yeah. <laughs> yeah. very local staff as well, probably. <laughs> You probably were very confused, but it's good. When, yeah, so which, yes. Which is, I'm getting out to places outside of Manchester and Glasgow and, and playing regions. But, um, that was the fascinating part for us. Yeah. Because being um, a interested in history and, and any culture. That was the greatest part of being able to tell the big cities and, and getting regional. <laughs> I know. You're, you're out there in the wilds, really. So, look, I'm in my... To be honest, I was born in my... Yes, I was born in the mid-60s, so I'm now in my mid-50s. You're a bit younger than me, aren't you? So I was just kind of curious, kind of it's always interesting to know what were your kind of teen years kind of growing up? When did music suddenly become sort of a major part of your life and you started thinking, this is incredible? Because for me, it was like the early glam years of Sweet and Alice Cooper and then eventually David Bowie and people like T-Rex, which are, you know, but you would have just come around about five years later, didn't you? Oh, God. The re- Actually, Tim, the reception's just gone a bit there again. Which side? The reception? Did you? Yes. Have you got a, a better place in the house or flat? 
Um, it, it's it's definitely a flat. It's a two room. <laughs> um, is that any better at all? Yeah, that sounds quite good. God, oh, all right. We'll give it another. I'm sorry about this. Yes. Yeah. So uh, yes, the early the early years when you started watching and thinking, hey, I could do that. Yeah, well, it was, it was um, American hard rock, really, and uh, Kiss and, and um, Jake Trick. And, but the, the first band that made a really big impression on me in a way that I wanted to play and get involved was uh, American uh, indie rock, R.E.M., The Replacements. Because before that, I'd just been in loving the Rolling Stones and, and the Easy Beats and uh, the Move, um, British 60s music. But then hearing uh, American, I guess, college rock, whatever they called it then, and particularly the replacements, that was the seismic moment where I thought this is something I want to be involved in and I can do it. And that conflated with going to see things in Australia like the Hard-Ons and the Lime Spiders and... Uh, and that was the big bang. I, I sort of put my football and my cricket bat away and bought a guitar and that was it. Yes. That's, um, so because I grew up in a, you know, a very working class country village you know, background and all we did when we were young, apart from being keen on Top of the Pops, which was a Thursday night and the top 20 on the radio, which was a Sunday, was kind <laughs> of, we, we were just playing football all the time, mainly because there wasn't that many options. So, you know, sport was a major thing. So being in a band wasn't one of those things that sort of, there were didn't feel like that many opportunities. And looking back on it, nobody sort of formed bands. We just kind of listened to music all the time. So did you have a bit more of a community of people around you who were, you know, forming rock bands? Oh, initially, no. It was maybe at uh, 17, 16, 17 I had three, my three best friends were all drummers. Uh, so I, I learnt a lot about rudiments and, <laughs> and drum kits and a lot about Canadian um, prog rockers Rush, uh, big Rush fans. Um, but no, it was only when I used to sneak into, into shows and, and see particularly the hard-ons. Uh, and get talking to people, and, and it, it all became possible. Um, so it wasn't an early teenage thing, it was a later teenage thing, 16, 17. And, and uh, by the time I finished school and, and went to law school in Canberra, suddenly it was being in a band was the ultimate. And um, I, I think I did that, <laughs> looked around for people to play with before I even had somewhere to live. Yes. Um, and that became a, a, a focus. And, um, yeah, when when uh, I meet kids now who are very aware of getting groups together at 10 and 11 and 12, um, good on them, lucky lucky them. But it, it definitely wasn't on the radar as a, as a young teenager. Yes, because during the 80s, as we had that punk period and then there was a bit of post-punk with Wire and Peel and Gang of Four and Magazine, then there was the kind of moment where there was like the new romantic scene and then definitely about 82, 83, that indie sound with people like Echo and the Bunnymen and the Smiths and June Brides and obviously the other band that everyone loved 
well, they certainly, they always say it when I ask them, is the go-betweens who had this kind of thing. So indie pop in the 80s, I put down from the years of kind of 83 to 87, which is basically the years of the Smiths. And then after that, kind of the musical mm. fabric changes again because ecstasy comes in and suddenly there's a new drug. And, um, you know, those bands, most bands have a five-year narrative, I find, and then things get a bit tricky. Um, so by the late 80s, a lot of those kind of bands had, gone you know like i suppose the june brides the smith had split up you know and and the wolfhounds and and yeah yeah no and and lots of those kind of because the nme at the time had put had put this cassette out called the c86 which was very indie pop and it had that jingle very familiar very mm-hmm. very jingle we, we used to listen to that a lot in um rusty our drummer had that um and it was he, he was really enthused. I, I wasn't so much into it, but yeah, the C eighty six and when when I got contacted by you, I was fascinated because that scenes and and movements. I, even if I'm not into the music, I, I love how uh, scenes develop and, and how they um, subsist and and um, you know feed off each other and and then either explode or, or melt. <laughs> um, yes. You know, it's when you when you mention the go betweens, I. I I did a talk uh, at a book festival with Robert Forster, um, who I enjoy enormously, his company, and um, Robert a few times met him, and Lindy and Amanda at, at acquaintances. I, I really didn't like them as a kid. I, I thought they were dreadful. I saw them a few times. I was friends with uh, and eventually joined a band here called Box the Jesuit, who were the very theatrical, um, avant-garde, with a bit of hard rock. And we played with the go-betweens a few times with the and the bad seeds and uh, yeah I just did not like the go-betweens at all and it's taken um, although liking them very much personally in only in the past three years have I started listening to those records and going I got it all wrong they're great (laughs) (laughs) I I had no no idea and then the the C86 sound for lack of a better term um, initially I I didn't get anything from it and um, only discovering now even in the past year, I've been hosting a radio show and putting all my um, past ignorance uh, away. There's a, and I'm I'm swathed in ignorance, David. <laughs> I think we all are. We all are. Well, actually, it's interesting because when I started doing this particular show and project and I was thinking oh yes I'll start interviewing those bands that I remember what I didn't realize and which I should have I don't know why I didn't realize there were quite so many <laughs> literally I thought I don't know oh, it, it's ridiculous amount isn't of it incredible <laughs> you know um because being a such a big fan of um psychedelic and garage music and that that just goes on forever but it's with every um, musical genre. It's just so much, and it's. Uh, I love that that uh, that just keeps happening. You just keep discovering um, eras, scenes that you thought you knew very well, and no, it just keeps opening up. You know the the Grimsby sound. And yes, it just I know. Keeps going. Well, it's interesting because I wasn't a big go-betweens fan. I preferred the Triffids, and um, and it was only afterwards oh. that, that I started to listen to them. And one of the reasons is that it wasn't so easy to listen to an album back then. You'd 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 have to either take a gamble. You'd read read a v- review from a journalist that you think oh, I'm not quite sure if I trust them that much ever. And um, yeah, you know, you have to spend three pound and ninety nine p for an album, and you just think I haven't really heard it, but it's been given the album of the week, and you think. 
So I, I mean, in, in a way, we, you know, and the other thing which was quite interesting at that time, there, there was the gatekeepers. There weren't that many places to sort of listen to music. So for us, we had this guy called John Peel on the John Peel show. And he was oh, like yeah. three nights yeah. a week or four nights a week. And, and so he was the person that you went to to hear something quite new and different. And and to be honest, at the time, you know, now I listen to it, it all sounds, even like the Sex Pistols, it sounds almost like quite middle of the road, really, doesn't it? But at the time, it seems quite radical, um, you know, but 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 for some unknown reason, you know, it was Duran Duran, Spandau, Bally, Sade, Phil Collins, you can move, and, and obviously we had the men at work and all that kind of stuff. But then, you know, this other stuff was kind of, oh, that's already alternative. And you'd listen to the, the go-betweens and you think, no, that's not alternative. That's just really nice pop. You know, that's nothing unusual. I don't know why that wasn't played on daytime radio, but it wasn't. It was played in the evenings or, you know, on obscure college radio. So it was kind of an interesting time, the 80s. But, you 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 know, finding music and, and then sort of trying to actually buy a copy. Sometimes, you know, I, you know, I remember buying the Lime Spiders um, out of control and it, it was really expensive and I had to go to London to find it and it was really like bloody hell that was a that was quite an investment then that was probably I think the sixth single I ever bought and um, tried to play it in each incarnation of any band I've ever been in and that was a huge thing and you're exactly right I was just fortunate enough that my older brother who I started the band with her um, worked and in hospitality and, and uh, just bought records and went and saw shows. That was all he and um, drugs and beer and that was all he spent his money on. And so when he was at work, I could break into his room. And um, but he was into um, oh well, I'm sure he had a copy of the CA6 as well. But uh, into uh, grindcore, uh, you know, Napalm Death and Concrete Socks and Heresy and. Um, Australian hard rock, Grong Grong, Kingsnake Roost, and, and, and the Spiders and Mass Appeal. And, um, but then when uh, Rave and Acid House hit, he got into that. So he had such a um, Catholic, uh, multifarious taste that I could, when he was at work, break in. And um, he was the gatekeeper. Uh, but I, I agree with you wholeheartedly, and it's, it's, I haven't thought about that in a while, that buying a record or a single was such a massive investment. You're right. And has to get the get the train into town and you know an hour there and an hour back and holding something in your sweaty little hands, and you didn't know how good it was. Yes, absolutely. And it took ages before you played the B-side of a single or album because um, cause it, <laughs> it just feels like, you know, you just had no idea after digesting the first side and trying to convince yourself you liked it even if you didn't like it, you know, because um, frankly by then, you you know, you weren't going to just play it once and throw it in the bin or play 20 seconds as we do now on Spotify and go to the next track. Uh, you were going to definitely play it. Because it's my, interesting. My... I was going to say I had an older brother and, like, I'm a little older than you and he... And in the 70s, he was really into prog rock and I would have to sneak into his room after being told I mustn't go in his room and play Yes, Genesis and Wishbone Ash and Barkley James Harvest. But he was of that generation who uh -huh. loved, loved prog rock. And um, I was curious. I was young and I thought, yeah, that sounds... It's not the Jacksons or, I don't know, Telly Savalas or some, some novelty record from the 70s. Uh, yeah, look... Um... I remember listening to a lot of Jethro Tull. You know, my favourite, uh, well, not my favourite, it was horrible, but the, uh, when I first heard The Replacements, uh, I was through seeing a video clip and I was 
15 and caught the bus to the nearest um, record store and uh, bought two residence records thinking that um, I just got the names wrong, residence replacements. Uh, got home, I worked very hard at the pizza shop to make that money and came home and I'm listening to residence records going, this isn't the fucking band I listened to last night. <laughs> <laughs> the, guy who's, the guy who sold me them is, is, is a friend of mine and he said, yeah, I, I looked at you, this kid who looked um, a wannabe um, you know, American indie rocker and, and buying residence records. He was going to warn me, but he really wanted to know my reaction. So uh, a month later, when I saved enough money to buy a replacements record, I came with cap in hand and tail between my legs and yes. finally got it right. Yes, I think, did, did Paul write a song called Dyslexic Heart or something, didn't he, I think? Paul Westenberg. He did, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm not saying you're dyslexic, yeah, but it was to, kind of... To... <laughs> oh, that's very funny. I, I hadn't thought of that. <laughs> that is very, very funny, David. Well done. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to steal that now. <laughs> well, it has, you know, because I, you know, I know quite a bit of his work and I love his solo stuff, actually, and I can't remember, but it's a dyslexic heart. Excellent. Yes. Did you ever meet him? Yeah, a few times. Um, we played London with uh, on the Reformation tour uh, four or five years ago. Uh, I'd met him a few times because we had mutual friends in, in Los Angeles. And I interviewed him when I was a, a, a lot younger. Um, each of those times playing with them, you and I supporting the replacements with possibly my the biggest weekend of my life. Uh, they were, and uh, Tommy Butler is a, is a very good friend of Davey, our guitarists. And, um, but yeah, meeting Paul and, and hanging out and uh, talking a lot was a huge, huge moment for, for me. And I tried not to outstay my welcome, but at the end of it, big hugs and um, lots of, lots of warmth. It was just magnificent. I, I, I have not had a bad experience meeting a hero yet, God, uh, but the meeting Paul and talking with him was um, was yeah just just the just the biggest thing for me. And uh, I, uh, I when I hugged him and I started crying, <laughs> and I just walked off with a bottle of whiskey. And and uh, Paul turned to Davy and said, "Hey, is, is is Tim all right?" And Davy just said, "I think this is a bigger deal for him than anything else." But my last words to Paul were, "Thank you for giving me a life." <laughs> Excellent. I know. Here comes a regular. That's a classic song. So, um, yes. Yeah, so, God, no, I, I, I do think his the solo stuff is amazing. Um, so then, I'm with you. The 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 band. You you know when you formed the band, did you feel because that was kind of an interesting period because there was there was I know you know everyone gets a bit sloppy with their terms but there was a sort of a, a bit of a crossover you had the rave scene but then the early years of grunge had started to bubble along because there was a sort of compilation called Sub Pop and there was Sub Pop One Hundred and Sub Pop Two Hundred that John Peel played a lot and we were oh. getting very excited because Nirvana sort of came over and support was supporting Tad on a tour of little art centres around the place. And then, so obviously, you had Sonic Youth and the Buttholes and Big Black and people like that. So you must have been, when you were forming your band, kind of having that very much on your radar, thinking, actually, we're not going to sound like jingly-jangly pop anymore. 
Uh, my heart was probably more in jingly jangly pop, but um, because by that stage I was um, uh, I was quite mentally ill and and I needed music that was uh, full of hope and um, and beauty. But uh, when I left law school uh, and had to get medicated again, I formed with my brother. And they were absolutely diehard into um, hardcore, and then absolutely uh, those um, uh, early sub pop records. They were, they were subscribers to the sub pop singles club. So when they asked me to join the band, I I didn't have the confidence, and I I um I just wanted to please them, and so I started writing songs, what we thought in that style, and and I really liked those records. I, the Mud Honey in particular, I thought. Mudhoney remain one of the greatest um, groups ever, and they still are. They're still just magnificent. And um, so that it wasn't in my heart. I was just trying to please my friends. I, I really wanted to to play something that was a mixture of um, the first two REM records and Aerosmith, um, which is a, a strange nexus. But um, so what we sounded like was because I was writing songs. That, that suited, first of all, my brother and my best friend, and then a second drummer, Mark. And, you know, just because I wanted to be part of a, a group. I, I didn't have a vision at all. I, I, what I listened to at home wasn't what we were playing. Yes. Blimey, that's quite unusual. I don't think anyone's ever had that who I spoke to. That's a really... Uh, yeah, look, I, I just... Um, I wasn't confident or well and... So I, I just wanted people to be happy and uh, my bandmates and, and to please them. And uh, when we started recording, our drummer Mark was very much into hard rock. And um, so I wrote to cater to that and to his style. And it's only years and years later that, that I started writing what I really wanted to and, and wanted to head the band. At the start, I just wanted to, to get drinks and and to make a loud noise and to stop the voices in my head so yes a people pleaser well that's that's often a good one in a way but look then because it was a hell of a jump because from from being a sort of debut band because because to be honest norwich don't have a lot of bands they don't have much of a musical scene when there's a record label called cherry red records and they a couple of years ago, released like seven CDs on the Manchester sound from, I don't know, 1970, late 70s to like the early 90s. Cherry, Cherry, Red, it, Cherry Red is based in Norwich? No, no, God, it's based in London. But they put a compilation oh. out. They, they do these compilations. They seem to go around making compilations. And so they did one on Liverpool, which was um, a five CD box set, and then one on Manchester, which was seven CDs. Now, now Norwich, dear old Norwich, don't really have much of a music scene. We've had a few bands, but nothing that's made it. And and I realised that not many bands kind of get beyond that, just playing in front of your friends and family and people you can emotionally blackmail to see you. But you managed to make one hell of a leap on on, on recording the first album, you know, going to America and doing it. So there must have been a lot of things that went on in a very short period of time. That's a really good question. It, it, yes. <laughs> um, I, I, I think uh, we had a, our first manager, Kate, got us on a lot of big shows. I mean, we played with Nirvana and um, 
Violent Femmes, Soundgarden, and I think uh, due to her, people really loved her, and she was she was a tough woman, but people loved her. She was a very um, respected within Australian touring circles, and so when Kate would say, "Hey, this is my band," and I think people would go, "Well, they're not great, but we love Kate, so we'll give them shows," and even those big shows, and that's through her tenacity. And um, I think we were quite fun to hang around with. And um, then uh, a record level approached us and made all that happen. It wasn't it wasn't our tenacity at all. We we were just um, we were, we had uh, one guy at the record company, Todd Wagstaff, and Kate Stewart, our manager, who just pursued things. Um, so when I know that the band's been said that we were oh record label. Um, inventions and, and, and given such a leg up. But no, it was, it was two people's dedication to us. And um, so they contacted Lee Ronaldo to, to produce us and, and we got on terrifically. I just saw them yesterday. We're still very good friends. Um, we, we were just, yeah, two two people who really believed in what we were doing and, and made it happen. We, we did none of that, the three of us, none. We, we turned up. Um, drank a lot, started to write some better songs, hopefully. And, um, but yeah, a, a lot, lot did go on very, very quickly. But um, thankfully, when those things happened, like when we became uh, quite successful in, in Australia, we went overseas and toured and played to no one, to mainly in America. Um, so there was no problems with us getting ahead of ourselves. You know, anytime. <laughs> There was something great that came. We'd um, we'd go somewhere where no one knew us and um, <laughs> be um, mildly uh, let down. <laughs> <laughs> yes, well, it's interesting because a, a nice a lot of bands, and this is the other thing I hadn't realised, was that um, they they have the f- a five year kind of narrative. They did, especially the eighties bands, because mm. because in the early eighties, when when a lot of the indie bands formed, there was a huge amount of unemployment. So going unemployed wasn't really a big thing, and it wasn't like something to feel ashamed of. You just went, oh yeah, we're especially alternative people, or punky people, or, or you know, like you wanted to kick against the mainstream. So it felt like, oh, we're being really radical. We'll sign on, and there was like thing. There was different things. There was job seekers allowance and enterprise allowance, which were schemes where the government would kind of give you a year's worth of being unemployed and not hassle hassle the person, but you could then put down that you were going to be a, a writer or a musician. And out of that, you know, there was a lot of bands that formed and they thought, well, this is great because, you know, we don't, we're not working, we're in a band. And then, you know, they make a sound and John Peel kind of picks up on the single and then they get a John Peel session, which is like, wow. And then they get a few more gigs around mm. the country and then that first album, things are good. The second album, that's when things get tricky. And what I noticed was that anybody who ever said they um, toured America would then say in the next sentence, and then we came home and split up because it just completely did us in. So how did you... How did you feel with kind of touring, you know, like that that kind of scene? Because I think it's kind of a big shock because when you're in, you know, the UK, you drive, you go to a little city, it's lovely and there's loads of history, isn't there? Castles and churches everywhere. You play in front of a load of, you know, pasty-faced kids with, you know, lacking vitamin D, but at least you've got 100 or 200 people wanting to see you, don't you? And um, and that's quite good. And then you go and you drive eight hours in America in front of 10 people who look a bit confused. 
Well, the first big tour we did there was with Soundgarden and, and they gave us a bus and they gave, uh, their crew gave us American cocaine and, and um, not the band, uh, the crew. And it, it was such an wild, wild experience. And we loved that those people and they were so generous to us. After that tour, we hired a, an old school bus that, um, and yeah, drove 12 hours and, and played to no one. Um, so it was just always that experience of up, then down, up, then down, up, then down. And so quickly, one week you'd be playing in front of 20,000 people in uh, San Diego with Soundgarden and the next uh, you're in uh, Pomona, California playing to six people. Um, and we were never built up by people close to us that, oh, this is gonna, you, you're going to do it. No, no showcase gigs. We'd just get shows with... Um, either friends or, or people that liked us. And so there was no expectation that we were going to do anything. And so we did it all just as tourists and enjoyed the good experiences and, and you roughed the bad ones. But we didn't fight a hell of a lot. We only when, you know, hung over. But um, there was no expectation that we were going to be a big thing. We thought this is a great experience for now. And uh, then we'll go home and um, get on with and do, do some shows together. I think that England uh, is particularly great with hype, you know, with the, the weekly press. And we'd noticed that. We're absolutely uh, avid readers of, of Melody Maker and the NME and uh, build them up and tear them down. And, and that, that five-year plan and second album, and it seemed like a, a model that we just, we'd read about, but we didn't feel that was happening to us. So we, I think we avoided that because yes. there were no expectations. Yes, because that was, um, I mean, because a lot of those bands, I mean, and, and it's just a bit, I suppose, before, the, you know, the, the chapter before before your band, with most a lot of people kind of came to the UK, you know, living in squats in London and, you know, like, you know, like the Chills, the Go-Betweens and, and sort of quite a lot of other, those kind of bands because they knew they had to sort of kind of get out of Australia if they were going to make it, whereas you obviously were much more going towards the America than, than London. Oh, not, not, not by design. Um, that was just where the opportunities came. We didn't um, seek to do anything by ourselves. We were asked, uh, and um, Ronaldo and Sonic Youth and, and uh, particularly Soundgarden and then um, Rocket from the Crypt at Twist Here. We, England felt more, that's where we wanted to be. I think that's more our affections. But then um, I personally just fell in love with America and, and long stretches of highway and, and highway food and um, baseball and their crappy beer. And uh, But then um, years later when we got to England, touring England, Scotland, Wales, Ireland was the hugest thrill for us, even to be lambasted by <laughs> the weekly press. Uh, that was even a pleasure <laughs> <laughs> because um, there's a very, uh, you know, the history of, of um, British music, um, Scottish music, you know, postcutter, just everywhere. It was just everywhere we turned, there was something brilliant. We ran, we were playing, I remember, um, where was it? In this stupid experience we were in, in, a, in a tiny town uh, playing and then we ran into Rick Wakeman of Yes on the street <laughs> we said oh Rick can we buy you a pint he went oh, that'd be great yeah and 
<laughs> I just bought out of that England. And, and um, when uh, we were doing some things with Graham Coxon's label, um, hanging out with him and, and he'd introduce us to folks. And then uh, when we did the Oasis tours and, and uh, hanging out with them in, in London. and um, But just that uh, we know when we went and played um, certain clubs, you know, the, oh, fuck, the creation used to play here or... Um, you know, yes. the Bunnymen played here at that show. Oh, I remember that. And it was just so exciting. And it, it still is. You know, when we go back to uh, money to London now, we don't really get out of London, but it's thrilling. Um, yes. So we didn't, we didn't, we didn't want to, to concentrate on America. That was just, and then we got signed by an American label and that's when it all became very boring. Yeah. And then when you were doing the second album, you're thinking, crikey, this is, this is kind of running... This has kind of got legs, so to speak. Um, did you were you aware, thinking, God, what are we going to do now? Because obviously, the first album, you know, it's like this is your creation. You just go voila, and then the second, there's a moment to think, oh my God, what what should we do? What should you know? Who should we get to produce it? You know, what's kind of what's happening in the charts? Should we try and sound a bit more like this? Because that's what people are saying is the sound at the moment. I just wondered if there was kind of more creative, kind of um, confusion about the second album. Completely. We, we before doing that, we were touring in America, and we were there for months. And uh, folks at home said, "You've got to come home, make a record." And we said, "Well, Ronaldo's just offered us the Sonic Youth rehearsal space in New York. Um, let's just make it here." Uh, we made demos in hotel rooms, and and I had no idea what was going on um, chart-wise at, at at home or anywhere. I guess it was. Um, um, Stone Temple Pilots and, with the, and Bush with the, with the big bands at the time. I knew that I just didn't want to sound like that because I didn't have. A, I've got a very weak voice, and uh, so just I just wrote what was going through my adult little brain. And Rusty, who was drumming with, with this from then, and that was his first LP on the second second LP, um, was such an inspiring and propulsive and, and chaotic drummer. And exciting, so I, I was pretty much writing to, for him. And um, no, it was just a, a creative little um, minor explosion, more like a bubble in the bath, really. Yes. And because they're, they're very odd, the, the structures of the songs on that second record are, are, are very odd. It's it's quite obvious that we were just writing off the cuff because it's not verse, chorus, verse, chorus. They're they're odd. Um, and Ronaldo would encourage us to do that. He'd he wouldn't um, encourage us to write better choruses or bigger choruses and, and, and structures. He said, hey, man, do whatever you want. And he was just really enthusiastic and um, pushed us just to, to have fun and enjoy it and be loose. Yeah, because so was, um, I was going to say, because uh, cause at that time, that was when obviously Oasis and Blur were at kind of their their peak, so to speak. So there was, there was definitely... Oh, of course, yeah, that's right. And they were definitely sort of, you know, couldn't couldn't do anything wrong. But then it's kind of interesting because when bands then go away and they have all their other bits and pieces, and I can't remember who I was speaking to, but they were saying, God, it started getting really difficult when, oh, it was the band called The Farm. And he was saying there was a problem when they were making the follow-up album where musicians suddenly had become sort of into relationships and they wanted to have the weekend sort of picking out curtains and radiators for their new home rather than rehearsing and, you know, tension started. Exactly, exactly, David. <laughs> it's, 
that is that is so that is so prescient because friends um, who look so much more successful than I am and, and uh, bands and singers and uh, and when they got successful, yep, they were out looking at houses and um, but we never did that. Well, we didn't have um, money to to do that and uh, all the success we just had we just kept on touring and, and I don't think any, the three of us wanted to. Um, we, we no one in our band would ever say I can't do that. I'm looking. I'm out with the missus looking for um, a new sofa. It was just whatever opportunity came up. We went. Yeah, look, is, is there beer there? Great. <laughs> uh, but I've seen friends when they become successful, make money, and they're they're into real estate, and that's when it all goes wrong. That's mm-hmm. when the excitement goes and the, and the thrill, and I think a lot of the creativity as well. Yes, because it was interesting you were talking about chaotic dramas because I did an interview with a, a author writer who just did a book just did a book on John Entwistle from the Who and um, talking about yeah. the problems that they had when you know Keith died and then they got to Kenny Jones and he was a completely different drummer and the sound changed and the band had lost their way but also he was saying that you got with John Entwistle because when he wasn't in the band and on the road he was just he didn't know what to do in his life it was just like he was you know it was a disaster you know he was like i just want to be on the road going to gigs playing gigs being you know getting slightly wrecked and that was it and he's kind of you know one of the last of the great kind of it was about sex drugs and rock and roll i mean were you also feeling a bit like when you look back at that period you know what what was happening then as this kind of writer was saying, you can't judge what people did back then to today's standards because it just doesn't work. You know, it's just like things that happened on the road, just, you know, it was just the culture, you know, you, you know, you can't judge it in today's standards. I just wondered if during the 90s that was also still the case, that it was still kind of, we're, on, we're a rock band and that's what we're doing. Sure. Uh, we toured very much the same way and... Um, you know, if there's uh, probably less drugs, I, I know I've sort of fallen out of liking um, cocaine uh, and methamphetamine. Um, I like slower drugs now. But I think the big uh, big factor for us was that we had our, um, a female manager, Kate, who was a strongly, strongly ethical person. Um, she was very tough, very outspoken, um, and but treated crews and uh, with maximum respect. We we were always told we're the lowest on the totem pole. The crew who set up the the gig have got to get the first drinks and the first sandwiches and um, and uh, sort of you know sex sort of trying to get gals and boys and everyone fucking each other it just it just kind of wasn't on the radar i mean things happened but that was, it was i think we were a, probably a little more um of a, a family little operation we were sort of drank together and hung out together and uh and i think when we toured with people who were you know we're on the pirate ship bacchanalian pirate ship we we enjoyed parts of that but when things started to get ugly and i saw a lot of ugly things that just thought, no, that's 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 not us. I, I don't know what would have happened if we didn't have Kate's influence over us because she she let us know that where we were on the totem pole and we never got ahead of ourselves. And so uh, the, the big indulgent thing about touring was um, 
you know, just drinking and drugging to, in hotel rooms together uh, with with friends. It was it wasn't quite the um, you know the, the pirate ship feel. And we actually toured with the Who um, just after John's death, and and Pete uh, did talk to us about that about how John that was what he lived for, uh, and um, the rest. Roger in particular just saying, look, we we can't do that anymore. And um, it was a, 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 you know, he went out the way he wanted to go out. That was the other thing that Pete said. He said, you know, he was, he was with, a, with a bird and with a nose for the blow. It's the way he wanted to go. Um, <laughs> in Las Vegas. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Tick, tick, tick. Yes, I know. <laughs> Groupie drugs, Las Vegas. Three. Bingo. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, yes, I, uh, my, my mind's my mind's going now. I'm thinking like to all the awful things we used to do. Yes. But no, it, also the, the bands we toured with when we whether it was um, with Soundgarden or Rocket from the Crypt or um, Therapy, uh, they were people who were huge into very big on humor and and um and you'd go and have dinner together and drink lots of wine and, and not um you know doing blow off someone's but if that happened if, if someone produced their bottom and wanted you to snort lines off it everyone would do it but that wasn't the day's procedure it was about laughing and and you know sharing stories and books and and um yes. going to pubs I have to say, you you were really lucky with your manager then, because a lot of bands never have a good manager, and they never can find that person, and that kind of. Oh, I've, I've had I've had I've had bad ones. <laughs> oh boy, when um yeah, I've I've had uh, terrible experiences, but um initially that initial experience set us up in a in a very good way, I think. Yes, and then when when we sort of almost turned the millennium. Um, you you brought out a sort of you started a solo career. What what was your sort of uh, initial feelings and and sort of you know like creative need to uh, branch out because that's quite that's quite a sort of big thing to do. Yeah, we, the band never discussed it. Um, we were living in Los Angeles and having our first real down period after that initial rush. Uh, we got signed by Warner Brothers in the States and I met a lot of people I love to this day, but it was a, it was a complete drag because we were being asked to write uh, songs to a structure and, and co-writing the professional songwriters. And it was, I, I look back on it very unfondly. And so the disappointment of that and um, we weren't getting along as well as we should and I just started writing little country songs, folk songs in, in um, my hotel room in, in Los Angeles. And I just thought, well, I can't hear Russ playing on these. He'd play them and he'd play them perfectly, but um, it's not what I want to do with the band. And so I moved to Melbourne when I got back from Los Angeles and met a lot of folk musicians and country musicians and um, made this record in a, in a basement of a friend's house. Uh, uh, so it was, yeah, no, no great design. Just that I was um, probably sad. I, the relationship was breaking up, and, and I felt that the band was being dragged down by being signed to a label. And I, I was disappointed in myself for allowing that to happen and not being smarter. And that 
uh, that started that um, that uh, thing. But it was it was playing with other musicians in in Melbourne. It, it's the, probably the least solo thing I've ever done because. Uh, a lot of other musicians on there. And, yes. um, and it's the interesting. Two, I was just going to say. Work quite well. Yeah. And I was going to interesting because around, I don't know exactly when, but alt country started becoming on my radar more because when I was growing up, my parents had country and western. And I have to say it was really dreadful even today. But then you heard some good country <laughs> and western, you know, like they loved Jim Reeves and Boxcar Willie and things like that. And then you listened to Waylon Jennings and. Willie Nelson, obviously Johnny mm. Cash, and then there was the sort of the old country period of Uncle Tupelo and um, Jeff Tweedy, and and then there was like artists like Gillian Welsh and Stacey Earle and and sort of Alison Cryer. So I started thinking, God, you know, because you, you know, there's so much butthole surfers and big black you want to listen to at you know ten o'clock in the morning. You just want to listen to something <laughs> else, don't you? You you suddenly think, God, I could do with this, but I don't really want too much twang. I don't want it to sound quite naff. And then you hear these other guys who are writing these amazing records and recording stuff in the sort of late 80s and then early 90s. And I just wondered if that was starting to kind of enter into your aura. That's a very good point, though. And I hadn't actually thought of this because, but uh, in 97, 98, we toured with Wilco through Europe and, and uh, had a great time touring with them. And I also started to become uh, a long-distance friendship with Steve Earle um as he was getting better and, and um more communicative and his records post getting clean, uh trainer coming and um I feel all right were huge to me. And, God and that record and, is so amazing and, and there's Lucinda Williams plays on one of those tracks on side two, which is just I love that album and I went to see him on that tour at the UEA. Yeah. It was amazing. God Yeah, it was that was I I hadn't thought but Steve's um we we don't see each other much with once every four or five years, but he's been uh, very generous and um, really lovely to me. And probably that gave me a little temerity. He and his brother, I was going to make a record with them. That's the second uh, record outside of the band. Um, hopefully one day it'll happen. But yeah, probably the we toured with Wilco on their being there um, to that second LP and. Uh, I, I really like them. They were very serious people, um, very serious people. But again, uh, you know, still acquaintances to this day, particularly with John, their bass player. Uh, yeah, maybe hearing those sounds, I thought, oh, right, this is, you can be a little bit plaintive, um, be a bit more lyrically dense. Um, and, uh, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, you know, I, I love the Jesus Lizard, but I, I, I don't think I can listen to the Jesus Lizard 24 hours a day. I, I, I need to have, uh, um, you know, some Merle Haggard in there as well. Yes. Um, and to just trying to write a different way as well. Uh, a few more major seventh chords in there. <laughs> <laughs> this is true. And then, you know, because one thing that I've noticed um, is another theory, which isn't 100%, but, you know, the past of time, like 25, 30 years, seems to be something that people start to look back and think, oh, we must do a film about this band or this album, because, like, a couple of years ago, they were like The Wedding Present had a film on their album, George Best, and then The Chills have just had an album. Oh, I've got to see that. 
Yes, God, it's all about, it's, it's a classic, it's a really good, because I couldn't believe it, but there's a huge thing about the producer and the drummer and the click track. The click track seems to be something that breaks bands up, <laughs> certainly breaks drummers up. It, 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 certainly, it certainly does. I mean, I when uh, an American producer started to put a click track on Rusty, I thought then this is, okay, we're, we've, <laughs> things are going to go bad. It was a... It wasn't a good experience. Click track. Christ. Yes. Well, I did an interview with Lindy from um, the Go-Betweens, and she said that broke her because the producer said, look, you can have Lindy, and this is what it sounds like, or you can have this kind of, I don't know, click track, whatever, and this is what it sounds like. And if you go with the latter, you'll have, you know, chart success and daytime radio or not. And, and it's like the band were like, oh, perhaps we'll get rid of the drummer. Even, you know, and you think, oh, my God, no wonder the band had so many problems. And... She still feels annoyed yeah. about the whole thing. It's not good. The click track. But yeah, so... She does. It's, yeah. God. Yeah, yeah. Lindy's, Lindy's a wonderful, wonderful woman and, and does a lot for musicians here. And it's it's it still rankles her. And, and I, she's such a unique drummer. I think she's just absolutely one of the finest and makes that sound. And as soon as they got the um, other drummers in and, and click track, it's, I, I kind of it lost it for me. But... Anyway, yes, it, it becomes, it, it's, it's like the David Bowie's mid, mid-80s music. You know, I was a huge David Bowie fan, but his mid-80s stuff was not good. It was interesting because they, reprodu- they, they produced it or they took it apart a few years ago with a, and took out that 80s sound. And actually, some of the songs sound bizarrely quite good. But yes, but before that, I was saying about the kind of looking back on things. You know, it normally takes about 20 or 30 years. And there was a film on the chills as well. And the go-betweens has had one. And the slits and L7. So everybody... There has to be this kind of passing of decades. So in you know a few years ago, you did a, a book, which obviously you have to have a sort of a you know the experiences, but also you know you get to that point in life where you think I need to do a book. I just wondered how that felt emotionally, kind of going through all that kind of material and stuff. Oh well, the book is um, is not autobiographical at all. It's um, memoirish, and it doesn't talk about. I actually don't talk about the band maybe twice. Um, uh, yeah, it, it's it's absolutely not, because I don't think the story of the band is that interesting. I think that we're interesting people, um, but the story is um, is not a not, not a fantastic one, and um, so. I tried to write it in a, in a bit more impressionistically or, or it's more about a 47-year-old um, um, sort of formerly mentally ill um, drinker uh, than, um, than a story of the band. Uh, and a chap who's uh, making a um, documentary about the band and he started last year and he, he's come around to my joint a lot and saying, come on, Tim, what do you want? And I said, well... Don't don't let a band dictate their own um, film experience or their own book because they'll they'll want things taken out. But the the stories in in the things that we don't want you to to show or to represent. Um, I've always thought Rusty, our, our drummer, is a, is an excellent excellent writer, and he could write a very interesting story about the band. But um, I couldn't because I'm just very solipsistic and in the middle of it and missing the whole story. I, I, I missed a lot of the really fun stuff that Russ and Andy and David probably saw and got involved in. Uh, so the book here yeah, was, was not um, autobiographical at all. And I've got no interest in, in doing that. Yes. I'd love it if Russ did, but no, not, not for me. I'm a very 
solitary and I think I miss a lot and um, any worth I've got as a writer is on is um, impressionistic stuff rather than, than facts and, and uh, what actually went on. Yes. Did it feel at all cathartic doing it? I mean, you know. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's t- talking about... Uh, and often a few chapters are done in character. They're not as me, I, I sort of attempt at fiction, which is, I'm writing fiction at the moment. And um, cathartic, it, it's, it's, it was just a real grind and hard work and working with three editors and, and with the, the book company. I was just very relieved to get it done. I wasn't nervous about it coming out. Um, and I, I really enjoyed going to, to book festivals and, and meeting other writers. I met a lot of writers in that process that are that are friends to this day and we, we um communicate so it was it was enlivening it, it was in, an enlivening experience I, I learned a lot and um hopefully that with what i'm writing at the moment um you know hopefully i can finish it <laughs> yes because the interesting thing is the band you know obviously you had that really intense period which was probably 24 7 and now it's you know, it was it's five years since the last album, but you you have been kind of regularly bringing out albums. So the, the the there's still the dynamic. So the band is still going. Yeah, we're we're writing a new album at the moment and um, throwing. Well, I'm writing the songs and uh, throwing them around. And there's we're getting on better than ever. I mean, the, the business is um, in trouble. Uh, we can't pay our storage bills and and. Things that we probably won't play for a long while, but I just started writing songs with with Davy, our guitarist, and sending them to Russ, and Russ is recording drums at home, and and so I think we'll, we, there's a chance we could actually make a record during this period. Um, and I'm actually feeling uh, not nostalgic, but I went through a whole bunch of boxes in my little apartment and found all these old tour books, and we used to tour so fucking much. Um, particularly in America and, and I got a I got a little nostalgic after after thirty years of not. And so maybe that's uh making these songs that I'm writing for the band gives them a, an energy because I I'm not wanting to forget about the way we were. I'm kind of thinking, oh that was fun and, and uh I'm noticing the diaries I kept at that time and that it was fun and it was quite affectionate. Yes. And we all love each other. You know, because it's just the four of us now. It's Andy, our bass player, manage, he's managed us for ten years, and we don't have labels, and um, it's just the four of us. And uh, but we can we can make a beautiful record while not seeing each other. It's perfect. So yes, absolutely. I know some of the best friendships like that. But interestingly enough, because going back, because because I find. You know, one has a sort of a story of your past, and then, as you say, you look through a box, and then you look at, find some pictures, and then you think, "Oh God, I'd forgotten that." And then you you realise your brain has been telling the same old narrative for you know every day for decades, and then you think, "No wonder I'm ended up thinking like this." But the, you know, that's just a little that started when I was possibly fourteen or eighteen that idea, and then I've just repeated it like a mantra. Mm. And thus, you know, you have to sometimes look and really break it and then look at other parts. So looking through boxes or, you know, looking back on the past, but thinking, actually, I could look at that slightly differently and not focus on that one thing that I, my brain will automatically always do, but go and look at something else. 
often changes your idea of what happened. I just wondered if that was kind of something that you were sort of experiencing kind of recently, you know, looking back at, um, you know, the tours and thinking, oh, God, I'd forgotten about that incident or that time. And actually, it was much better than I remember because because in a way, you probably you can probably remember the, the standout moments which are there. And then there's the other bits that you think, oh, yes, God, of course, I'd forgotten we even played that. David, um, I got sent some photos by our old sound engineer the other day of us touring um, the States in 94. And I remember the little moments so much better than the big ones, oddly enough. I remember um, sitting around with um, uh, the, the, the Girls Against Boys, I think it was, um, and Ben Folds drinking a field. It could have been Kansas. Uh, um these odd little lovely experiences of hanging out with um, other other musicians and then award shows and, and um, you know, taking drugs with this person of note and all that. I have to be told to get about them. Uh, and the, But the, what I've been finding is, as well as looking at the photos and seeing how, oh God, how sprightly we all were, um, it's going back through old novels and, and that I would have been reading at that time and, and just noticing what I'm writing in the, in the, in the columns. Uh, and, um, just not just noticing that I actually wasn't that much different from how I am now. I mean, um, uh, kind of come off as being rather brash at times, but it's just a very solitary, quiet person who couldn't wait to get on stage and, and release all that energy. Um, and sort of making peace with the, the way that we were and the way that I was. and, and um, But through it all, um, and particularly at that time when we were young and, and, and dumb, we really stuck together. Uh, yes. A lot of photos of us just being together, we actually hung out. And uh, that, that still happens. I mean, we, when we tour now, we, we, we spend a lot of time together and... and um, accepting of our differences. The only time that we didn't get on was when we were in the States and uh, signed to Warner Brothers and um, I was being taken out a lot uh, separately from the other guys because I was the, the songwriter. Uh, that, was the, that was the only really difficult, difficult time. Yeah. I mean, you were saying at the beginning, you know, when you were sort of... 18 and had finished college and ran the band you said you were sort of had had suffered a lot with mental illness how have you managed to sort of cope with that side of your life you know because obviously because you know I've been asthmatic all my life you don't get rid of it you have it and you have to go through ups and downs and stuff like that so I'm not saying you know like mm. illnesses everyone's different but you know you realize oh this is something I've just got to work with and you know if I don't if I don't keep it in check it will kill me but that's fine you know I'll have to yep. have this weird relationship with something and you know and obviously that's physical you've got something which is more mental I just wondered how that's that's been with you uh it's been very challenging and um but at, at a point now where I'm I'm good and it's just uh, not medicated anymore just just management really uh, I've, I've really tested it um, uh, by just uh, self-medicating, you know, and um, that comes and kicks you in the ass. And so just uh, that's going to be a constant, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a drinker and that's 
I don't think that's going to change. And but just um, knowing not to damage yourself too much, and and uh, yeah, it's 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 a it's at a good place at the moment. Um, but I know I just know, as you said, it's it's probably the strongest or the, the most difficult relationship I've ever had, and the longest one. It, it, it's a relationship. I've got it, and I've just got to um, tend for it and recognise it, and and not uh, not ignore it. Um, it, it. It's with me, and and so I've just got to manage it the best way possible. And I think I've learned a good way to do that by really just uh, making peace with it and stop fighting it. I mean, anxiety and and um, depression. That if you try and fight them, you can go into a horrible spiral. Um, acceptance yes and um and caring for it mm. yes because there must be because you've produced an amazing body of work and given so much there must be a lot of people around you that once you let go of things deeply care for you and completely love you i just wondered that that must feel quite special as well uh yeah well i i, I can find myself to, I, I live alone and uh, my partner lives around the corner and um, my daughter in New York and uh, I've got a very small group of acquaintances in here but my relationship with my bandmates is very strong uh, when I started working bar I was bartending for last year and, and this year and I went back there and I was in I was loving just being the bartender and then it became a, a, more and more people would come in and want to talk about music stuff, and then that's when I started feeling uncomfortable. I thought I'm not I'm not here to talk about um, anything I've done in music. I'm I'm just here to be a bartender. I just want to work and get a regular wage and and um, clean up uh, afterwards. And so it's when when there are a lot of people around, that's that's when I start becoming uncomfortable. One of the things I've recognised um, that's better for my health is that I just stay with very few people that yeah. I know and trust. It's, mm, I mean, pl- I, I'd love to play in front of a lot of people. <laughs> That's fine, but I, I don't want to talk to them. <laughs> <laughs> this is true. This is very true. And fitness, do you, because you were very sporty when you were young, have you managed to sort of maintain a, mm. a physical, you know, ability? I know that talking to... Is it Blackie from the Hard-Ons? He's very big on his... Oh, he's a maniac. Yeah, he's well, he's a, a fitness fanatic and, and mm-hmm. he looks good, man. He, he looks better now at you know, 56 or whatever than he ever did. <laughs> he's, he's such a good guy. I love Peter. Um, uh, well, I'm, I'm still... Apparently, I'm still thin um, and I'm, I'm relatively fit. I play, still play a lot of football and a lot of cricket, but... I'd kind of counteract that with um, drinking and smoking, and uh, but um, no, I think I'm, I'm relatively relatively healthy. I, maybe it's my slightly nervous disposition <laughs> that's, that's kept me thin. I, I just think I'm a bit lucky that way that I've got pretty good health because um, uh, I, I challenge it a bit. Yes, um, you know, I could kind of drink 24 beers a day, and people say, "Well, why, why the hell are you still thin?" That's I'm not sure. I think that's that's just genes or luck. Um, yes, definitely. I mean, now, in particular, I mean, with um, you know a lot of ill health in my family, that uh, I, again, I don't want to challenge that. I'm I'm very thankful for just at least being 
healthy. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, th- I think at 50, if I was trying to ha- have a good bod, I mean, I'll leave that to Blackie, all right? Yes, I know. <laughs> and just, and just kind of last... He's a maniac. I know, God, those abs. Amazing. He's always showing them off on Instagram. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, dear old Blackie. But look, what would you say, what would you say to an 18-year-old self, you know, if you could have said something back to to yourself, you know, and you could have just whispered into, you know, just whispered a few things. I just wonder what that would be, because you've obviously lived an amazingly varied and interesting life and been all over the place. I just kind of was curious. Just be less wary of people. I was very wary and very suspicious of people, mainly because of what I was going through. Um, just be a, more open and lift your head up, smile at people, smile at strangers, and uh, read more fucking books. There were 15 years there I didn't, didn't read and I regret it. I, I could have... There's so many long pl- plane journeys and bus journeys. I could have been reading the Russians or something. Yes. <laughs> Read more books, Tim, and be less wary of people. Oh, it's interesting because I know David Bowie used to be such an avid reader and that was one of his kind of things that he always went back to when he was not making music. So it's kind of it's kind of an interesting one, isn't it? I mean, I mean, because, I mean, obviously, you know, I mean, I know you, you said you were doing some sort of bartendering last week, um, last year, but do you sort of... Did you ever sort of find yourself getting to that point where you thought, I can call myself, you know, an artist or a musician? I just wondered if, because often with a lot of people, you know, they have that five years and then they go and get a job where you haven't. You did stick with a band and music all your life. I just wondered if you you suddenly one day thought, actually, this is this is what I am. I'm not just faking it. This isn't just a little phase. This is actually my life. This this year, I I, uh, I wrote a theatre project, uh, and we were touring it. Um, I think called uh, Liquid Nights at Bohemia Heights, um, and uh, theatre piece sent with some music. And I was touring around with that and with other musicians, actors, and and that was yeah. Very recently, I thought, oh, this is actually my life. And and sure, I'm a, not a bad bartender, and and I'll, I'll do that. But that's not my life. Um, oh, this is, and I've never really. I, I thought of myself as a as a hard worker, and, and just yeah, I like going out and working. And now, I thought, but I think uh, in this time of solitariness, uh, as I'm looking out the window, and and but I think I'm always just preparing to create something. So maybe, maybe I am a musician. Maybe I am an artist. And um, I, I have not thought that in the past 30 years and, and oddly enough now at 50 I think oh fuck I'm stuck here <laughs> <laughs> and it's and it's and it's good because um uh, some acquaintances and friends are, are not are doing it tough at the moment and uh, I'm not because uh, just I just creating little things even if it's just wordplay or, or poems or little fictions and um this is a very fecund time for that um so I'm not so ashamed of saying, oh, shit, maybe I'm a writer or an artist. I'm, I'm one of those people. Whereas yes. previously I would have horrified to call myself that. Um, and, and very fortunate. Yeah, because I noticed, because, you know, like Bowie was kind of thankfully my first single and first album. Could have been Gary Glitter. Would have been terrible. Um, but I did realise that he spent all his 60s, um, his 60s, he spent the 60s kind of, 
making music, which was pretty dreadful, really. But then, you know, he hit it in the 70s big time. And then, you know, you think, wow, you know, you went from Ziggy to Station to Station to Low. And then obviously the 80s, not so good. But, you know, that playing and, and dealing, dealing with and doing different things. And obviously you've got the band, but you've done all your side projects and solo projects, which gives you a lot more gravitas, really, because, you know, that takes a lot more courage to take the baton and think, right, I'm going to do do this, because you're not the same person in the crowd. You're not even the same person who might just go, well, what do you want me to play? You're, you're the person who's creating it. So that does give you a totally different kind of viewpoint of things. Yeah, look, uh, maybe. Uh, because I play in... in footy clubs and, and cricket, I, I do notice that when speaking to other gentlemen or women that I play with, about just what they do and the way they are, and, and that they really like hanging out with uh, each other and, and going out and having dinners with people and, and, and drinking and and, um, and talking. And I, I can't wait to get away from people. Um, I love them, but I, I don't need to be entertained. I kind of I'm absolutely happy just being by myself and, and or walking around um, where I live or, or somewhere else and just alone with my own thoughts. Uh, I'm, I'm I'm so grateful that that's there. Um, I, I just don't need to be entertained, and maybe that's because I've got that kind of brain. I've trained it that way that you can just be, if not creating, then preparing to create just by nourishing your your beautiful brain with. Uh, beauty and horror and, and um, terror and joy. Uh, and it's not like you're, you're stockpiling stuff, but it is happening while yes. you're out there looking out, looking out a window or walking around. Um, hmm. Yes. So noticing the way other people conduct their lives, that's I'm starting to, to have an understanding of the way that um, my own yes. well, brain I, works. Well, the other person I always loved was Lemmy from Motorhead, and I think he spent all his time sort of on a slot machine or or reading, and he loved reading, but he didn't he didn't really want to socialise particularly with people. He just liked his own company, and I think there is something about being really happy with your own company. But then one day, putting on a bass and putting on the amp, putting you know, turn the amps up and just you know playing rock and roll. But you know when you came when he came off stage, he, he gave the impression of being very much happy to be on his own again and and just avoiding people you know doing his thing so it's kind of it's kind of interesting personality types in that way i, I trust uh, people like that i mean i, I love lemmy uh but I, I do trust that a little more and i i'm at peace with that i get quite nervous when it's obvious that people need people to be around them uh i know within the band uh, the four of us are very happy in our own company, um, individually and together. And that's, that, that, that there's a piece that comes with that. I think that's one reason why we're stuck together for so long and love each other because we recognise that in each other. But if we're alone, we're fine with that and we kind of need it. Um, and if there was someone in the band or someone that was close to that needed company, my partner is she's a waitress. Uh, and is excellent at a job and has been a waitress for 35 years, but it, it lives alone and um, has for a very long time. And again, just is, as long as she's got her books and records, she's, she's fine. And uh, I trust that. Yes, excellent. And that was me in conversation with Tim Rogers. A huge thank you to Tim for that. 
And um, yes, do check out his amazing back catalogue. And hopefully there will be new material soon. Plus, he has a book out. But uh, yes, you am I. They were amazing. Anyway, thank you for listening. This has been David Eastall, The C86 Show. If you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Just do C86 Show. I will be there. Keep it positive. That's what we say. And also, I've been interviewing bands for the last few years. So um, I've got all those on iTunes, Spotify and Podbean. So, um, yeah, do again C86 Show. Anyway, stay safe. Until next time. Goodbye. <laughs>